the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hoffland and Sonia Portillo. In this edition of the Oncogene Brief, brought to you from the 59th Annual Meeting of the American Society of Hematology, held December 9th through 12th, 2017 in Atlanta, Georgia, we sat down with Dr. Steve Banner, Senior Vice President and Therapeutic Area Head Oncology at Estellas. I'm Peter Hofland, here with Sonia Portillo, and this is the Oncogene Brief. In this interview, we talk about the many changes at Estella's, from the company's focus to some of the greatest challenges the company currently faces. We asked Dr. Benner about the definition of personalized medicine, precision medicine, and targeted therapies, and the differences of these approaches beyond the typical buzzwords, and how personalized medicine is changing the drug development process. We also asked Dr. Benner about his impression of this year's annual meeting, and what he thinks is the most exciting clinical news presented. And finally, we asked Dr. Banner about the results of a poster his company presented about the economic burden of treatment episodes in acute myeloid leukemia patients in the United States, which includes new information about major drivers of economic burden for acute myeloid leukemia patients and the therapeutic strategies needed to deal with these burdens. After the break, we'll be back with Dr. Banner. Here at the 59th annual meeting of the American Society of uh, Hematology, we have the opportunity to talk to uh, Steve E. Banner, and he is the Senior Vice President, Therapeutic Area Head Oncology at the Stellis Pharma Global Development. Welcome, Steve. Thank you. So uh, let's start with uh, some uh, uh, interesting kind of uh, discussions that you may have had earlier this year. Um, Earlier this year, uh, Estella announced the fact that it would cease operations of its ADZ development. What was the reason for that, if I may ask? Sure. Estella's uh, has a wholly owned subsidiary agensis, which was part of our drug discovery and research activities. Uh, The drug discovery and research team looked at um, future areas of research and determined that for Estella's as a company, that they would be moving more towards other areas of research. And subsequently, a decision was made to wind down the activities at um, at Genesis. And and following the uh, winding down of Estella's, how did that actually impact the company's focus? I mean, in in terms of... um, where you were going with things where maybe you're some of the, your biggest challenges, maybe? Well, first, it's the wind down of Agensis. Um, so uh, Agensis has produced for us an, um, an ADC that we're still um, very actively developing and very interested. That's um, Infortimab Vidotin for bladder cancer, which we're developing with our partner, Seattle Genetics. That's just gone into a phase two trial that we believe will support an accelerated approval. We are looking at the other programs, um, which may be uh, part of a spin-out. Um, certainly, there uh, is interest in th- some of those programs continuing as well. Overall, I think it's, uh, for the company, a difficult decision, but one based on how much uh, money we can spend overall and what areas we thought we as a company could be, uh, could be most effective in. And in part with uh, an expansion into regenerative medicine, predominantly on the non-oncology side, as well as a move towards immuno-oncology within our oncology research efforts, uh, that really prompted that decision. Hmm. So shifting gears a little bit, um, within your company but also outside of the company, there is um, 
a lot of discussion about uh, personalized medicine. There's a lot of discussion about precision medicine. There's a lot of uh, information or questions about targeted therapies. So if you look at, at those and if you look at the definition, maybe you, can you help us with the definition of, of those three things? Because I understand that each of them may have a slightly different focus. Sure. Well, all, and all of those two terms, as you know, are used broadly um, to mean a variety of different things. For us, target, targeted therapy, personalized therapy could be exemplified by our program Gilteritinib that we're discussing here at ASH. The reason is that that is focused on a specific mutation that we could screen for in, in patients. It occurs in about 30% of AML patients. And we know that when patients have that activating mutation, they have a worse prognosis. They're more likely to relapse, and when they relapse, their survival is worse. So it's a, obviously a selected target in a specific group of patients that can be clearly identified. And our agent specifically targets the mm -hmm. FLIT3 mutation. So when we think about personalized medicine, that's the, kind of, that's the kind of example we're thinking of. As we move forward into new areas like immuno-oncology, it will become much more challenging because there, there there's not only the tumor to be considered, but the, the, the body's natural response to it, the infiltration of immune cells, and how that might affect it. And so I think that for everyone, that's still very much a work in progress in terms of how we're going to define personalized medicine in the setting of immuno-oncology. As I said, I think that depending on who you talk to, you'll get a favorite term. Um, and for me, many of those things really focus on the same activities. Um, so I, I'm not, not as concerned with the exact definition because it's hard to imagine a precision therapy, for example, that's not a targeted therapy in some way. So again, if you... Um look at, for example, what happened here at ASH, uh, and this is probably not a, an area where you guys are at this, mom at this moment anyway are involved with. You look at CAR-T, for example. Mm -hmm. um, that is definitely a complete different approach to medicine. I mean, when you look at the old age of blockbuster technology, blockbuster kind of drugs, and you compare it to, to a CAR-T, I mean, there is a big difference. Um, it, Again, as I said, it is not something that you're involved in at this moment. Um, but how does that kind of change the way you and, and, and your co-workers or colleagues at different kind of uh, industries may think about the future of medicine? Well, I think what's uh, striking here at ASH is the dramatic amount of progress and the pace of progress that's been, uh, that we've been seeing um, recently. So that for AML, for example, there were relatively few new drugs. It was the same chemotherapy background literally for decades. And now what we're seeing is a number of targeted therapies, ours, but others that are looking at specific mutations. What we expect to see is uh, a trend towards trying to maximize the value and the benefit for individual patients using a variety of different approaches. Certainly the CAR-T results are, are very provocative, very exciting. Um, but all of these um, therapies have a significant uh, costs associated with them, it, um, challenges in terms of development and administration. But I think we'll continue to see an emphasis on trying to create value for individual patients. Right. Now, when you look at what we said about the different approaches, precision medicine, targeted therapies, personalized medicine, um, we were about a CAR-T, um, how does that overall change the way um, you as a company look at drug development and, and how does that impact drug development in, in, in a bigger picture? Well, what we're seeing is that first in oncology, there is a tremendous amount of competition 
and a, a huge number of agents. Somewhere between 40 and 50% of all agents in development for any diseases are in oncology. So the amount of activity is, uh, is quite striking now within this space, which means that there's going to be a lot of competition for patients, for example, to be able to complete trials in a, in a reasonable amount of time. So we're looking at different structures in terms of trial designs that uh, might be more conducive to being able to get an answer more quickly. One of the advantages of um, pursuing these agents that are more targeted and more specific is that you would expect to see a stronger signal of activity very much earlier in development and, and potentially have the possibility, if you're having a, a large significant benefit, uh, clinical benefit, to be able to uh, do a registration program that's much smaller than some that have been done traditionally. Right. Now, when you look at um, another issue that um, people talk about here at ASH um, and other areas in, in, in different therapeutic uh, sessions, um, there is a difference between what so-called we call real-world data and clinical trial data. So that goes a little bit more in the way we look at clinical trials in general and the information that we may be able to get out of, of the real world when a drug is approved or uh, being used by patients and doctors. How does that impact? How is that changing the way you look at, at drug development? How is that impacting drug development? It's very much becoming central to what we do. Um, for example, at ASH this year, we presented six um, abstracts that re related to gilteritinib. One described the phase one results in a combination study. Two were follow-up to do uh, translational science related to a previously completed trial. And three were really looking at aspects that you're referring to now, looking at large databases to assess the costs of therapy, to look at symptoms and toxicities for patients with AML. Um, those sorts of efforts that are helping us better understand the patient experience and be able to, f to determine what are some of the, the major determinants that would be important for patients in terms of providing the best possible treatments. In the past, I think when our therapies were, were less active and we were really concentrating most of our, our efforts just to try and find a uh, therapy that could produce a benefit, uh, we were in a much different, uh, much different place. Now, as we develop drugs, even in the early stages, we're not only trying to show that safety and efficacy that would be compelling to regulatory agencies, but we're pr trying to define what that is also going to mean for patients in terms of how is that going to impact their lives to both have the disease and to, ta to take potentially our therapy. And these large data sets are really good ways for us paralleling what we're doing in the clinical trials to be able to get insights into that, to know where there may be opportunities to improve not only what we're doing with our drug, but the experience for the patient that's dealing with the disease. Now, when you look at, at uh, bigger data sets, if you look at real-world experience to some extent, are you expecting to see differences uh, between the clinical trial results and the data that actually comes from larger data sets? Sure. What, what you typically see when you start to look at these larger data sets and which is, was reported in one of the posters was that there's much more variation in treatment patterns when you get outside of the most more limited academic centers and the kinds of centers that are putting patients on clinical trials. These are centers that would tend to treat patients even outside of a clinical trial according to treatment guidelines, for example, to have institutional standards so that irregardless of which um, physician you were going to see, you would probably have the same approach towards treating that kind of disease. Um, when we move more towards a, a much broader basis of treatment, we'll see much more variability, and it's important for us to understand that. Right. 
Now let's um, shift a little bit gears again and and look at the exciting clinical news that you presented this year here at uh, uh, ASH. Um, first of all, can you explain a little bit about the disease area? We talk about AML um, and and the drug uh, as such. Um, maybe explain a little bit about the FLT3 mutation um, and in general before we actually go on to talk a little bit more about the drug. Sure. So we're um, trying to develop an effective new therapy for AML, acute myeloid leukemia. Myeloid leukemia is a disease state where you get a proliferation of immature blasts, which are non-functional cells. That occurs in the bone marrow and then is seen later in the peripheral blood. As those um, immature blasts expand, they crowd out the normal cells. And so patients that have AML have low white blood cell counts and are at risk for infection. They often have anemia because they're not getting adequate production of red blood cells. They have bleed, um, bleeding disorders, both because of a deficiency in platelets and also sometimes in some settings because of the, lo- the high blast counts. So we see that patients with this de- disease, if it's untreated, it's rapidly fatal. Um, because of the uh, the impact on on the bone marrow, um, these patients will become um, prone to overwhelming infections. For example, so what it's very important to treat this acutely, and tre- the treatment is primarily geared towards trying to decrease the blast count, trying to put a patient into a remission, and if possible, in the setting of AML, doing a, a stem cell transplant, which uh, is the most likely to be a curative therapy for these patients. Uh, unfortunately, it's a disease. Um, because it's affecting predominantly older patients, patients in their 60s and beyond, many of those patients can't tolerate uh, aggressive chemotherapy. And so even from the time of diagnostic, diagnosis, many patients, uh, perhaps 30 to 40%, won't be able to, t- to tolerate what we would think would be the optimal therapy just because of the, the toxicities associated with it. Which obviously represents a major unmet medical need. That's right. So what we've looked at is for targets that specifically could give us an advantage in terms of adding on to traditional therapies. And one of the targets that's uh, very attractive would be um, the FMS-like tyrosine kinase. Uh, And so we've developed a FLT3 inhibitor against that target. As I mentioned earlier, about 30% of um, the 23 or so thousand U.S. patients that will develop AML this year will have this mutation. When it's present as an activating mutation, it actually confers a a worse prognosis. So as an activating mutation, we thought that that would be an important target. So we've specifically developed an oral agent, um, a potent tyrosine kinase inhibitor that inhibits both FLT3 and also another tyrosine kinase called Axel. We think in the setting of AML, most of the anti-drug activity we're seeing is due to the FLT3 inhibition. So we started initially with a phase 1-2 study in relapsed refractory AML that was published last uh, summer in Lancet Oncology, which showed high response rates, about a 52% response rate for the patients who were treated with doses of 80 milligrams or higher, along with a survival of about uh, 31 weeks, which in this very heavily pretreated relapsed refractory AML population was impressive. We're now doing a phase 3 study that... um, is going to hopefully support a, uh, a registration of gilteritinib on a global basis. That is a uh, trial called the ADMIRAL trial that's still accruing patients. We're hoping to have results of that trial available next calendar year in 2018. And we'll use those results. Um, it's a trial that, that's looking both at um, overall survival as well as response rate as the basis for our initial, our initial filings. 
In addition to that, we are doing a whole series of additional phase three trials to also move gilteritinib earlier into treatment. Um, because we think that ultimately it could have the greatest clinical benefit when given earlier to uh, to patients that are less heavily pretreated than we've seen in the um, the trials that will lead to the initial approval. So we're doing a trial with a BMT CTN where we're giving gilteritinib following a, a stem cell transplant. We're doing another phase three trial where we're giving the drug following induction chemotherapy. And for that patient population that I mentioned that can't tolerate the kind of um, more aggressive um, induction chemotherapy, we're combining it with azacitidine. So this would be for our, um, a sicker um, patient population that had more, co- more, more, more comorbidity, um, was less able to tolerate aggressive therapies. What's going to be uh, presented this afternoon, uh, it will be a, the, the initial findings of a phase one combination chemotherapy where gilteritinib is actually given to patients with AML and a FLT3 mutation as part of initial therapy and then continued follow, following the initial uh, induction chemotherapy. Um, that, that trial has shown that the agent appears to be well tolerated. You see a lot of adverse events in trials in AML driven by the underlying disease state and also by the, the, the combination chemotherapy. But in that context, we're not seeing toxicities that look substantially worse. In addition, we've seen an over 90% uh, complete CRC rate, um, which we think is impressive in an, in an early setting. Obviously, it's initial phase uh, one trial that's still looking at um, expanding cohorts to find the optimal dose. Uh, but for where we are today, we think that um, this is promising data that could potentially support a path for further development earlier in the disease. Now, tell us a bit about the disease area and the unmet medical need faced by patients. And also, if you can differentiate the drug from other FLT3 inhibitors. Sure. Um, so the, the disease state I, I mentioned is one that's, that's rapidly progressing, uh, fatal without treatment. Um, and we typically have a goal of trying to get patients that are able to tolerate uh, the therapy to be able to receive a stem cell transplant for their best chance for long-term survival. Um, in the relapsed refractory population, these patients have typically undergone both induction chemotherapy. Many of them have failed a transplant. Um, so there are very few treatment options for them. So the option of having potentially an oral therapy, it's a once-a-day pill, um, that, that's able to control the disease and produce uh, complete responses in that patient population is really it would be very clinically meaningful. With regards to other um, FLT3 uh, inhibitors that are in development, we don't have direct head-to-head comparisons. We can only speak to the properties of the drug. As I mentioned, it's given once a day. In our data to date, we have not seen any uh, uh, significant evidence of um, EKG changes or QTC prolongation. We know from the uh, from the data that it is a very potent inhibitor inhibitor of both FLT3 as well as Axel. Other data that's being presented at um, at ASH this year was presented over uh, posters over the weekend. Also looked at data from the, uh, the Chrysalis trial that was the phase one, two trial that was recently published. And here the investigators looked at very sensitive methods for seeing whether or not the FLT3 mutation was eliminated, what we call a molecular response. That's important because we, we believe if we can induce a deep molecular response, we'll have those patients that were, are going to be much more likely to have a prolonged survival. 
And we know that gilteritinib is a drug that can do that. In the data that was presented at ASH, um, using um, next-generation sequencing, we were the investigators were able to demonstrate that there was a significant reduction in, um, in the, the disease burden, even using these very sensitive techniques, which correlated with an improvement in survival. Um, we also know that gilteritinib as a FLT3 inhibitor in, in, uh, inhibits both the internal tandem duplications. That's the most common kind of mutation in the FLT3. Um, but so out of that 30% of patients that have a FLT3 uh, uh, mutation, about 25% of those, uh, that total will be um, those with internal tandem du duplications. But we know that a mechanism of re resistance um, that occurs less commonly, accounting for the other 5%, are mutations in the kinase domain. And we know that our FLT3 inhibitor acts against both of those types of mutations, which would be important both in terms of preventing uh, relapse and also getting maximal response because some patients will present with both of those uh, both of those mutations. Now, Estella's presented a poster called Economic Burden of Treatment Episodes in Acute Myeloid Leukemia, Patients in the U.S., a Retrospective Analysis of a Commercial Payer Database. So what are the major drivers that you found of economic burden in the AML patients? Well, not surprisingly, um, the, the treatment for um, patients with AML is extremely expensive. It's expensive because much of it tends to be hospital-based, and any treatments associated with hospitalization tend to be quite uh, expensive. In addition, because of the underlying disease state, um, the problems that I said with anemia, with infections, these patients are also prone to, infect, to hospitalization independent uh, of the times when they need to come in for treatment. And both of those factors significantly drive up um, the, um, the cost of therapy. We also see that hospitalization is an important driver um, in the setting of relapsed refractory disease simply because the patients, unfortunately, will have so many uh, adverse events that require hospitalization, so significant bleeding episodes, infections, um, that, that they require um, extended care within the hospital. So that's important for us in thinking about our therapy in terms of one of the major goals needs to be trying to not only control the disease state itself, but hopefully and help in a way that helps the patient stay out of the hospital. So what are some of the strategies specifically that are needed to deal with this burden now and in the future? Well, we think that, that having therapies that are able to produce a much more pronounced clinical benefit with less toxicity, like a gilteritinib, also has the advantage of being an oral agent, so it can be taken by the patient um, outside of the hospital, it is, um, tends to be well tolerated, that all those sorts of things, uh, along with the disease control, would translate into economic benefits for the patient as well or for the, the healthcare system. So one of the things that you mentioned is it, the potential for an oral therapy. Mm -hmm. Um, there are a lot of drugs that are actually shifting to oral therapies in, 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 in different areas. Um, some of the research that comes out uh, and that actually looks at oral therapy suggests that um, patients may take, quote-unquote, vacations, drug vacations, or maybe not necessarily adhere to the therapy as such. How important is, is it that, that uh, people, first of all, adhere to their drug therapy? And what is the risk if, for example, in a, in a treatment that you're dealing with, um, they may not do that? And I'm not, not talking about they forget to take a pill tonight or sure. the drug tonight, but I mean really kind of not adhering to the drug therapy as such. Certainly. Uh, the, that, that's a very important question that we're, uh, that we're trying to address with the work that we're doing. 
Um, patient adherence to therapy is very important. We know that if patients, for example, were to take a much lower dose of giltritinib while it would still have activity, it would not have as much activity. In this setting, part of that uh, focus is on patient education to make sure that patients understand how important it is for their own treatment. In the setting of AML, these patients have been, typically been through a lot of therapy. And um, so adherence rates, I think, are probably higher than they are in general for some other diseases where patients may not have the same sense of urgency around their treatment. But because uh, of the fact that we're relying on the patients to take their therapy, it's very important for us to understand what their experience is, as I was talking about before, so that if they're finding that it's difficult to take the medication in some way, um, if uh, they're having side effects, that we understand and manage those effectively so that we can give them the best chance to benefit from the therapy. So as we go on, we're going to be doing... uh, work with uh, things like patient registries. We'll continue to uh, look at uh, the impacts of quality of life measurements uh, to help us understand what the patients are going through and be able to hopefully support them in the best possible way to take the therapy. And and with that, um, of of course, there is uh, an issue about cost. I mean, uh, you mentioned earlier, I mean, it's expensive um, to uh, be treated. I mean, I mean, some of it is based on um, hospitalization cost, treatment cost outside of the treatment that you uh, work with. Um, overall, if you look at, at cost, I mean, we see an, an increase in, in, in health-related cost. Um, what is important for patients, uh, maybe payers, maybe people that are on the advocacy side, maybe people that are on, on the regulatory side to understand about drug development and not only the development of the drug, but the whole paradigm, the whole whole area of, of, of drugs and, 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 and pharmaceuticals and, and treatment. And, and they will, the cost may be related to that. And, and, and I guess people don't always understand this. Well, I think... Uh Outside of the industry, um, it's not widely appreciated how expensive and how time-consuming it is to develop the drugs, um, as well as the fact that that to continue to drive and hopefully have a drug that's going to be successful, we also have to carry the burden of those efforts that we undertake that that don't actually lead to a, a product. Um, so those are our real concerns within the industry. It's, a, it's an expensive process to try and develop, discover and develop new drugs. Um, to answer the other part of your question, what I think that that certainly we're striving for at Astellas and within the industry overall is to have a, a better um, understanding and a better creation of value for the patient so that if we can create um, therapies that are, are more successful in treating individual patients, then we'll see a much greater benefit. And then that the, the impact of the pricing becomes, I think, less important, um, still an important factor, but less important as we show a dramatic improvement in the lives of individual patients. So basically improving their quality of life um, in versus the, the potential of, of more classical kind of ther- therapies? Well, uh, certainly I, when I started in the industry a, a long time ago, we were having such a hard time showing any benefit that we were really focused on modest benefits in broad patient populations. We've evolved as the science has evolved in oncology now towards we're really trying to show dramatic benefits and be able to identify which of the patients are most likely to gain those benefits. And that's the sort of transition that we need to be thinking of. We also now, as we have more treatment options, need to be thinking about what the impact of those treatments are on the patients so that we could hopefully develop um, therapies and regimens that give the patients the optimal benefit, but also maintaining quality of life 
um, interfering less with their normal activities and with their their life as they uh, have to battle both cancer and take side effects from treatment. So if you look at, at, at oncology and hematology in general, and, and this is not necessarily to do with Stellis, but um, there is this, this, this concept of um, accessibility. Um, there is this concept of, of, of um, disparities, um, and, and they all sound very negative to some extent. Um, what is the industry do, doing with that, and, and what are you doing maybe, uh, as Estella is doing, w- with access, accessibility to drugs, but at the same time also maybe helping to, to limit the effects of disparities um, in, in, in the availability of the drug or the treatment availabilities? Well, certainly, uh, as Stellis, we start with a commitment to try and have the patients who would benefit from our therapies be able to have access to them. Um, but what does that mean, access, in, that, in your case? Well, it, it really varies based on country regulations, mm-hmm. um, on the, the way the healthcare system is structured. So we can't have a single approach that will be acceptable uh, in, in a broad range of countries. We have to basically country by country, yeah. uh, develop approaches that will meet the needs of those patients within the, the framework of the regulatory and legal um, structure for that healthcare system. And that requires then different solutions um, based on what, what's available to us. In addition to that, um, again, I mean, we're looking, for example, this is an, an issue that was actually raised at uh, different medical meetings. Um, it's also some of the things that's being discussed here. Um, uh, disparities in association with, for example, um, race with underserved. Um, obviously, I mean, people may not always have the ability to get that. Um, I think the uh, the president, the current president of the AACR actually raised that as, as one of the goals to change that this year. I mean, during his tenure as, as the president of the AACR. Um, what were... What are some suggestions from your side or what are some of the things that you can do to to maybe really eliminate some of this? Well, one of the things that we're doing is we're, we're trying to get closer to the patients to be able to understand what their experience is and what we need to do to help them. We're doing that through um, a series of collaborations and uh, discussions with patient advocacy groups that have a broader reach than we do in terms of understanding what the needs of the patients are and what might be factors that could limit, for example, clinical trial recruitment or to limit um, the, uh, the ability of patients to get access to the drugs. Okay, so... Other kind of developments, as we've seen here at at, at uh, Ash, we've seen here also over the years uh, a change in the way, for example, how clinical trials are being developed, and this may have a direct impact on on your strategy and your operations. Um, in the past, it was basically academia; it was basically the medical profession that initi- initiated clinical trials, um, tried to work with with drug development uh, companies. Um, what we see right now is that um, patient advocacy organizations and, and, and are actually going to be involved in the whole drug development process. Uh, obviously, that is a major change. Uh, patients taking charge of their care. Um, how, how is that impacting you? And how, is it, how does it work for you to actually deal with that? Well, I think that, that that's a great step forward. 
uh, for us to be able to have our t- trials tailored towards the needs of the patients, as well as to be able to to collaborate more closely with the patient advocacy groups. One example of what you're speaking of is the Leukemia Lymphoma Society, which is sponsoring a trial called Beat AML. That's a trial that has different arms for different patient populations. We'll be putting gilteritinib into that trial. Um, so I think it's a great opportunity for us to be able to, uh, to partner more closely with uh, those patient advocacy groups. There's also an advantage to having trials like that that are well thought out and have the support of a variety of stakeholders, the patient advocacy groups, also the academic clinicians, um, patients themselves, industry, so that we can have those trials running on a more continuous basis and be able to put um, interesting drugs into the appropriate patient population within that construct rather than having each of us have to start a trial over from scratch every time. So I think that that's a very welcome uh, development. Okay. Now, it's a couple of last questions. I mean, and this is also something that you see here um, at ASH. You see that also uh, in different um, settings. Um, When you look at, um, for example, diagnostics, and you look at um, companion diagnostics, you look at novel drugs, you look at personalized medicine, where we were talking about earlier, how important is the relationship between diagnostics and pharma and diagnostics and treatment? Oh, it's, it's becoming very important for gilteritinib. Obviously, since we're focusing on targeting a FLT3 mutation, we need a, um, a approved diagnostic at the same time that will allow us to identify the patients that could benefit from the therapy. And so we're, um, we're working to develop in parallel a, um, uh, a companion diagnostic that could be approved from the regulatory agencies at the same time. That requires different expertise than we have internally. So it means different sorts of partnerships and collaborations to be able to to develop that. What I think is a future trend that we're going to be seeing as well is that ultimately as we now have many more therapies that are very targeted, you certainly see that in the AML space where it went from everybody got the same chemotherapy backbone if they could tolerate it to being able to identify subsets of patients that really would benefit from an additional therapy on top of that. That if we start to see the implication, the implementation of broad screening, that would be multiple gene panels, then we may be able to identify patient populations that would benefit from individual targeted therapy or potentially even in the future combinations. And so um, being able to to have those targeted therapies sort of goes hand in hand with the need to expand the, the diagnostic capabilities. Are you developing that in association with another company, for example, or are you doing that yourself? No, we didn't have the, the capabilities internally, really not as a diagnostic company. So in vivo scribe is uh, developing our companion diagnostic. Okay. So um, at the end of this program, um, you've been here right now looking around uh, at ASH. You've been probably going to a number of sessions. Um, in conclusion, what are some of the things outside of what you do as a company that really excites you, what really makes you look at, at the future and say, well, this is, this is really exciting? Well, I think that um, having um, been to ASH meetings off and on for many years, the, the pace of change and the amount of new therapeutics that are, are coming forward with solid data that they're really benefiting patients is really quite amazing and uh, is creating, I think, a, a great deal of hope that we're going to be able to make substantially quicker progress towards um, helping patients that have these kinds of diseases. Certainly is true in AML that we've been talking mostly about, but it's true in a number of other disease settings. And it's a variety of different types of approaches. So um, everything from cell therapy and with the CAR-Ts um, through 
antibody therapy, tyrosine kinase inhibitors, a variety of different approaches that have been able to uh, show significant benefits for patients. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for your interest. This edition of the Oncozine Brief was originally recorded on December 10th, 2017, during the 59th annual meeting of the American Society of Hematology, which took place December 9th through 12th, 2017 in Atlanta, Georgia. For us here at the Oncozine Brief, we want to thank you, our listeners and underwriters for your ongoing support, and we're happy to share with you some great news. Later this month, our program will have a wider reach when iHeartRadio will also distribute our program. And in January 2018, the distribution will also include the United Kingdom, where the Oncozine Brief will be heard on UK Health Radio. And starting this month, the program is downloadable as a podcast. More information about that in our online journal Oncozine at Oncozine.com. We know that based on this interview with Dr. Banner, you may have questions. So please submit your questions to our editorial team via email, Facebook, or Twitter. And we'll post as many answers as we can on our website, Oncozine.com. That is O-N-C-O-Z-I-N-E dot com. Thank you all. And thank you for listening. And join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hofland, here with Sonia Portillo, and this is The Youngers in Brief. The Oncozine Brief is produced for Sun Valley Communication by Peter Hoffland, Sonia Portillo, Evan Wint, David Kaler, and Sean Mayer, and distributed by PRX, Public Radio Exchange, and InPress Media Group. Support for the Oncozine Brief comes from our listeners and commercial underwriters. For more information about underwriting options, contact Sean Mayer at 949 923 1660 or visit our website at oncozine.com forward slash underwriting. The Oncozine Brief contains health and medicine related information and is provided for educational and informational purposes only. The content is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it.